Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by Spalding University's Sina Jeter Naslund, Karen Mann Graduate School of Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to Think Humanities. Today, guest host Linnell Edwards is with us. Linnell is the Associate Program Director and Poetry Faculty Member at Spalding University's Naslin Mann Graduate Program in Writing. Her latest book of poetry is This Great Green Valley, a chapbook of documentary poetry based on revisionist narratives of Kentucky's pioneer founding in the 18th century. Three additional full-length poetry collections, Covet, The High Woman's Wife, and The Farmer's Daughter, were published by Red Hen Press. A chapbook from Accents Publishing, Kings of the Rock and Roll Hot Shop, chronicles the work and art of the, a glass-blowing studio. Her short fiction, book reviews, and essays have appeared in Another Chicago Magazine, New Madrid, Connecticut Review, among others. Welcome to Think Humanities. I'm Linnell Edwards, Associate Programs Director for the Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing at Spalding University, and I'm speaking today with writer Crystal Wilkinson about her new work, which is just out this month, January, Praise Song for the Kitchen Ghosts, a culinary memoir. Crystal, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Many of our listeners may be familiar with your work, Crystal, particularly during your time as Kentucky's Poet Laureate, but I do want to highlight a few things. Award-winning author Crystal Wilkinson is a recent fellowship recipient of the Academy of American Poets, is the author of Perfect Black, a collection of poems, and three works of fiction, Water Street, Blackberries, Blackberries, and The Birds of Opulence, which is a marvelous book and was nothing short of a revelation to me when I read it. She is a recipient of an NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Poetry, an O. Henry Prize, a USA Artist Fellowship, and an Ernest J. Gaines Prize for Literary Excellence. Her short stories, poems, and essays have appeared in numerous journals and anthologies, including most recently The Atlantic, The Kenyan Review, Oxford American, and others. She was Poet Laureate of Kentucky from 2021 to 2023, and is editor of Screen Door Press, an imprint of the University Press of Kentucky, which publishes exceptional voices within Black literary traditions. She currently teaches creative writing at the University of Kentucky, where she is Bush Holbrook Endowed Professor. And again, welcome, Crystal. And what a beautiful book, Praise Songs for the Kitchen Ghosts, is. Um, There were, I guess, a lot of cooks in the kitchen involved with making this book. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of, of cooks present and past. Right. Um, The book's title, Praise Song for the Kitchen Ghosts, Stories and Recipes from Five Generations of Black Country Cooks. And the second part of the title is pretty straightforward. The book does indeed contain both stories and recipes, some of which I am getting very close to trying. But could you say a little more about who the kitchen ghosts are and what the praise song that you are singing is? Mm. Um, Well, this book is pays homage to uh, particularly starting with the immediate past, like with my my mother, my grandmother, um, and with my 86-year-old Aunt Lovester, who's very much still alive. Uh, but it also reaches back across generations uh, and reaches back as far as my fourth great-grandmother, who was called Aggie of Color, who was brought uh, we think as an enslaved woman uh, from Virginia to Kentucky in the in the early 1800s. And do you want to say a little bit more? Maybe read something that begins to introduce her and you um, to readers. Sure. Um, one thing that I'll say about her, I I had this grand plan as all writers do, right? <laughs> I was at a writing retreat in Florida, and I had this grand plan to write something fairly quick. I wanted to write something about my grandmother and it was going to be sort of a braided essay, um, sort of looking at women in my family. Um, 
And so it was sort of a, you know, I think writers have a tendency to do that thing like runners do and pass the baton. You know, we sometimes Uh steal from ourselves. So I'd written this essay that was uh, the original prairie song for The Kitchen Goes for Emergence magazine. And I wanted to write something else that just sort of furthered it. And so I was working on that. And it was going to be really quick, just a little tiny segment of my writing retreat. And it took over the whole thing. And the reason it took over the whole thing is that I woke up one morning to sort of walk the beach. And there Aggie was like big as life, bringing herself from, you know, the 1800s back to me. And so that's what this passage is. And uh, it also has her voice in it. One hot night while on a writing retreat in Florida, I woke up crying. Though she had been gone for more than 250 years, I could hear Grandma Aggie's voice, urgent and persistent. She says, we slept in the corner of the kitchen. The kitchen smelled of fried meat, copper, and salt. And in the corner where we slept, the air was so humid I felt nauseous. In the wee hours of the morning before the plantation stirred, I lay half asleep, wiping at gnats swarming at the corners of my eyes and sweating through my dress. It was in those minutes between sleep and wake that I heard my mother singing my name, though she wasn't calling to me in your language. The sound of her voice floated into the window like a feather and then took wings like a bird and flew in a circle around my head before it disappeared up toward the rafters while I lay there in the dark. We take the buckets and draw water from the well. We empty the slop jars. We gather eggs from the hen house and a bit of jowl from the smokehouse. We render fat for the biscuits and for the soap. We gather stored ashes and make lye soap. We sew Mrs. Address, but she wants one more fine. So we give a knapsack to David to take down to the Bowman's place for Sally to fix. We draw more water from the well and build a fire in the backyard for washing. We boil the clothes and lye soap, hang the clothes on the line. We fold the clothes. We pick vegetables from the garden. We pick worms off the tobacco before Mars Bowman sends his field hands to help. We milk the cows. We churn the butter, we feed the chickens, we slop the hogs. Up in the night, we pick a mess of beans from our little little garden, fry up some hoe cakes from our own rations, and eat a bit for ourselves. We cook, we shower our food. We cook, we shower our food, we heal. I know that women in my family have been kitchen ghosts for centuries peeping over the shoulders of our daughters and granddaughters and sons and grandsons saying, just a little bit more, turn your fire down, not too much salt. Please have some, we have plenty. And I imagine myself many years from now, standing in my great grandchildren's kitchens, nodding my head as they cook, whispering in their ears, that's right, keep it up. We will always have plenty. Beautiful. And there is a real spirit of gratitude through the whole book. Um, that was one of the many things that I th- think kept pulling me through it, um, that that kind of grat- gratitude and acknowledgement. Um, so this took over what had been perhaps other writing plans at a writing retreat. And A Culinary Memoir is a new kind of book for you. And as you said, it sprang from an earlier essay and maybe was initially going to be just another essay, something short. You have worked in several genres, as I mentioned, poetry, short fiction, novel, the essay. What Culinary Memoir? How did this hold what you felt like you needed to say now? Mm-hmm. Well, there was some little, little bit of coercion, you know, I, um, one of my favorite sort of Appalachian food waste people, Ronnie Lundy had seen this essay and she said, well, would you want to talk to my, my food people? Of course, she has a whole team, a food agent, um, and all of her connections in the food world. And I said, mm, no, <laughs> no, I'm working on a novel. That's not my thing. That's your thing, Ronnie. And she's like, well, can I just can I just send her this essay and see what you think? 
uh, see what she thinks and see, you know, y'all could just have a conversation. And so that's kind of how it, it, it came about. And the more I started writing on it, um, the more it felt right. This idea of the tension, um, both the wonderment between the present and the past and the future, uh, and also the tension between the past and the future in particular. Like I was thinking about this sort of trajectory, right? From Grandma Aggie, which as far as my research could take me, uh, born in 1795, to my present day daughters and what food means meant to Grandma Aggie, what food meant to my grandmother, what uh, food meant to me and the preparation of food, um, particularly in harsh times or in, in lean times financially, uh, in times of scarcity and what it means to my daughters. So throughout the book, there is sort of, a, uh, I can't even say it's really a trajectory. It is, but it sort of moves back and forth between time um, all the way through sort of reaching to the future generation, going back to the past generation. Yeah. And so there's this sense also of, of it all being present right now. I mm -hmm. mean, I feel uh, as you talk about uh, Grandma Aggie and uh, certainly your grandmother um, and your childhood, I feel very much in a present narrative, which is, again, very compelling. Um I am curious about there is this rush of the project taking over and you're writing and it's an exciting time. Um, how did you approach the organization for it? it? It doesn't quite feel chronological, but on the other hand, it kind of does because the later chapters bring us into the pandemic and mm -hmm. through it. Um, mm -hmm. And the early chapter introduces Grandma Aggie. Um, but how did you approach the writing and organization for it in terms of what you needed to say and how the recipes fit in, honestly? Yeah, I mean, I think the <clears throat> the narrative strategy for it um, sort of mimics memory, right? It mimics standing in the, in the present, standing in the current moment and, and looking back. And um, what has happened to me over the past few books is uh, I no longer sort of decompartmentalize the different kinds of writers that I am like, you know, the poet doesn't live over here. The, the, the essayists live here. The memoirists live somewhere else and the fiction writer live in another house. They're all in the same body at the same time. And so that's the way that it, that it came to me. There was historical research. So um, the, essayist would show up and handle the historical uh, research. And I mean, it's all me, but I didn't see the separation of these things. I saw them as, as one. And when Grandma Aggie's voice and story came to me, uh, because she was an enslaved, because she was Black and enslaved and a woman, uh, there was not very much documentation of her so I had to rely on her entering this world uh, through imagination and through spirit, through little bits of found archival information. And so her sections became um, fiction. Recipes, I've been handling recipes my entire life, though I'm not um, a chef, I'm a home cook and I have a a recipe box since I've had that I've had since I was 14 years old. That's been sort of an accumulation. My grandmother would give me a recipe and either she would write it down or I would write it down as she spoke. So for me, um, these recipes um, were like poems, right? Because they were, they were both oral, you know, as, as they were spoken to me and, they were sort of oral as I heard them uh, to the ear. And so as being from a, a strong storytelling tradition um, and in a poetic tradition, um, the way that she spoke and the way that she wrote them down or the way that she spoke them out loud for me to write them down um, became a sort of 
poems to me, uh, especially those long written ones were poems. And so then there had to be collaborations from the experts because I'm thinking like a poet. I'm like, okay, I'm putting these recipes down. My editing made them more poetic. And then, um, thank goodness, the experts at the press were like, oh, we want people to be able to use these. So we, you know, we had an expert food tester that came in and, and um, helped revise, not too heavily, but helped revise the recipes um, to make them more cookable. I, right. I have some recipes from my paternal grandmother um, who was writing down recipes prior to that. And you you always want to second guess a little bit. Um, do we have, still have the same kind of baking soda that they did in 1920? Um, and so I, I imagine that there might have been some experts involved. If The recipes feel like such a wonderful complement to the writing, and I can't quite figure out why. Um, how did you decide which rep recipes to include, and did any of them not make the cut? Or... Oh, I think there are a lot of recipes that um, that didn't make the cup the cut. I mean, I think that so many of the ones that we uh, ended up using uh, were ones that had found their way again, sort of rhythmically or or, or poetically in in the essays themselves, and then they were sort of excised out and made into cookable form. Um, uh, following at the end of the chapters um, so that they could could go from the nightstand to the kitchen. <laughs> you know, I think there's a certain rhythm um, to them that that does make them poetic when you talk about that old language. And um, there's a little bit of, of the beauty, the physical beauty of them um, in this book because there's so many sort of archival photographs. So one thing that I hope to capture in both the writing uh, and in the pictorial portrayal was how beautiful the handwriting was of the time. That beautiful handwriting that I still have so much of of my grandmother. And I kept saying, you know, you can't recreate that with an expert going through this. You know, like I have to include it in the essay, the way that she wrote it out. And I hoped to then sort of replicate that pictorially and they did. They did um, use a lot of of those old photographs. Yeah, um, it is as I said at the uh, onset, a really beautiful book. Um, the the archival photographs, um, the Polaroids from the nineteen seventies and eighties. You know, carefully annotated as a picture of little Crystal is uh, standing there. Um, or of your own children or grandchildren. Um, and then, yeah, the handwriting. We're, we're going to show our age if we talk about and lament the loss of handwriting. But in fact, it is becoming <laughs> a, a lost art. And when you look at archival uh, written documents, it's just, it's gorgeous. Um, so uh, maybe there's something else you'd like to read for us about um, how, more about how you became a cook or again, in this sort of spiritual fiction mode of Grandma Aggie. Yes, let's see. Um, Rita, there's a chapter on um, blackberries that is also, uh, we'll call it ancestral fiction um, with Grandma Aggie. When I think of our lineage in blackberries, I return to Grandma Aggie because the tyranny of slavery makes her the first of our lineage that I can find. She is 12 years old when she comes to me from her time in 1808. I listen for her voice until it comes and then I write. The blackberries were plump on the vines that year and the brambles at the edge of the open field beyond the crops made a U-shape around the field. Our clothes smelled like smoke to keep the chiggers off, Judah had said to us both. Then she placed her hands on each of our shoulders like she was a mother sending us off for schooling. Watch out for them old snakes, she said. We waved at her and set off with our buckets, our eyes wide with the thoughts of pie. 
When we looked back across the fields, we could see the white siding and black shutters of the main house. Beside us was more field, then the woods. I smiled to myself at my secret. I turned it over in my mind like a silver coin and enjoyed it there, glistening in the corners of my memory. Hannah was a beautiful child who paraded the circumstances of her birth in her face and hair. Through no fault of her own, her eyes were green and her hair, though nappy as mine, was the color of wet hay. She wore keen features on a sad face. She took up my hand and we ran toward the brambles. We picked a few berries and ate a few. As we stepped further into the bramble, we came upon the graveyard, which even though I knew it was there, took me by surprise. I remembered some of the names of the dead underneath the large field rocks, Shank, Old Cassie, Big Sarah's little baby, Solomon, Great Bet, and even though we had only been in Kentucky for two years, the rocks that indicated where the dead were at rest spread across the edge of the field and on up the hillside. I couldn't name them all. I knew some of them were from the Bowman Plantation too. Shank, Big Sarah's little baby, Old Cassie, I said, Solomon, Levi. I stopped because I was daunted by the fact that I couldn't remember no more than that. I was thinking about all the black people under those rocks and what they died of, but I was also thinking about being away from the plantation and by ourselves. You mean a bunch of people are dead underneath there? This is where they buried Big Sarah's baby, I said, and pointed to the small fieldstone that marked the grave of the baby that was born dead inside of Sarah. That baby in there, Hannah said, and looked at the spot where I pointed. I remembered everybody who had stood with Big Sarah, singing until she cried it all out. I nodded my head. The sun was filtering through the trees on, on up the hill and the grass across the field we just walked through, bent a little with the wind. We come to the berries and I was showing Hannah how to stick her hands into the briars as quickly as she could when she walked over to Big Sarah's baby's grave and laid down. You get up from there, I said. Get up from there right now before I whip you. But she didn't get up and didn't say anything. She lay still with her eyes closed for a long time. Is that all they got to do? Is be dead? I walked toward where she lay on the ground and crossed her arms in front of her. What's the matter, I said. You ain't glad to get away from the house? She shrugged her shoulders. Guess we need to get back, Hannah said, and those big eyes she had spilled over with tears. Not yet, I said. We got to come back with a mess of berries first. Girl, don't you know nothing? Know all I ever going to know, I guess, she said. What do you mean? I asked her and moved closer to give her some comfort if I could. You want to be like them, she said, and pointed up toward the graves. I do, she said. She stood up and went to the first bush that was close and began picking. She stopped picking again and looked at me, waiting on me to answer. Right when she said that was when her hand dropped and she got pricked by a briar. Blood started dripping. No, I don't, I said to her. You don't either. I pulled her close to me and tried to wipe away the blood with my dress. Then I grabbed her by the hand, jerked her a little toward a bunch, toward a branch where the water was flowing quick, and held her hand in cool water. I thought about her blood traveling like mine had, so somebody who loved her would know. Maybe her mother was in Virginia, too, wanting her girl back. We all had somebody out there wanting to see us again. Can you even imagine that? A whole world of people looking up toward the sky every night, asking whatever God they believed in to bring us back to them. Cool. And they're out blackberrying. This comes out of the chapter called Blackberries, Blackberries. Yes. And um, so a couple of thoughts there. Um, the, many of the roots of Black food waste do come from this deep experience and rooted in, in, in slavery. Um, why and how is that an important part of the book? 
it might be obvious, but, um, you know, something you can say about what emerged as a priority for you in the writing. Yeah, again, it's that sort of that sort of traveling um, effect of thinking about um, where I come from, where Black people come from, especially, you know, in Appalachia um, and what the lives of our ancestors um, might have been, what might have been like, uh, what were they like, what what might have they been like. And so... um, a lot of that was important for me once I came upon um, when I went to my hometown and I dug through court records and I actually found Grandma Aggie um, on a legal document. And instead of her being called Aggie Wilkinson, as she was later on in census, she was called Aggie of color. And realizing that my fourth grade grandfather likely owned her. Um, you know, I've grown up my entire life, of course, as as a professor, as an intellect, as as a, a person in America, knowing uh, what enslavement meant to my people, but to see it on the page um, as a very intimate part of my own family um, was something that affected me deeply. And I wanted to show, um, you know, there's a, a concept in, in Africa called uh, Sankofa, like you have to, to, to look back and see where you come from in order to know where you're going. So I wanted to use that concept to sort of travel back and forth or really travel through time from Aggie's time through my grandmother's time through my time and then sort of project the future to my daughter's time and my grandchildren's time and then move backwards and forward. You know, your listeners can't see what I'm doing, but it, it, it was, uh, I'm making these swirls in the, in the air because that's what it felt like me to me. And it feels all connected. I mean, I, I agree. Um, there's this sense of history and memory being both, a kind of straight line trajectory, but also recursive and a spiral. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose a culinary memoir uses food as one kind of anchor, um, as well as a through line, just to sort of help our listeners understand the organization here. This was from the chapter Blackberries, Blackberries. And like other chapters, it toggles between a past and a present using several modes of writing, including um, fairly straightforward history um, uh, that's recorded history about the period. Um, These imaginal ancestor fictions about um, Grandma Aggie, um, your own memories of your grandmother, as well as then very recent memories um, and recipes. And so, again, to give listeners a kind of sense of the the shape of the book, what are some of the recipes then that come at the end of the Blackberry chapter and, and how do they sort of, in, I don't know if embody is quite the right word, but manifest? Does that yeah. is that, has that sense of history? Yeah, so at the end of the Blackberries chapter, there is a Wildberry Lemonade, uh, which was a drink that uh, when me and my husband, Ron, owned a, a bookstore in a cafe, that's a drink that we had there. And one of the reasons why we wanted to use blackberries was frozen blackberries as part of that drink was because of my own memories of picking blackberries. So there's sort of a contemporary version there. There's blackberry jam, which of course travels uh, maybe through Aggie's time, up through Ma Lily's time, through my grandmother's time. And um, there's blackberry cobblers, uh, both the easy way uh, to make back blackberry cobbler in a in a one that's not so quick. And um, there's what we call blackberry soup, which would be when you get home from picking blackberries, you wash them off, you put them in a pan, you sort of boil them, add some sweetener, and you just eat them sort of fresh with two two biscuits on top of. Um, so those are the, the recipes. And I think the recipes also travel through time. 
Right, right. Um, so with uh, Thoughts of Blackberries, we're going to hear a pause and hear a word from our sponsor, the Sina Jeter Naslin Karen Mann Graduate School of Writing at Spalding University. Spalding University's low residency MFA in creative writing offers one-on-one -on -one faculty attention in a supportive literary community. Study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, or writing for TV, screen, and stage. Stay at Louisville's historic Brown Hotel during week-long residencies or travel on short-term study abroad. Flexible scheduling and affordable tuition put a top-tier MFA in reach. Learn more at spalling.edu slash MFA or email schoolofwriting at spalling.edu. Welcome you back to the Think Humanities podcast. I am Linnell Edwards, and I'm speaking with writer Crystal Wilkinson about her new culinary memoir, Praise Song for the Kitchen Ghosts, a beautiful book of stories and recipes from five, cent, five generations of Black women. Crystal, you're going to read a little bit more for us um, from some of the opening pages that talks in expository ways about the history of Black and Appalachian foodways. Okay, yes. Um, people are always surprised that Black people reside in the hills of Appalachia. Those not surprised that we were there are surprised that we stayed. My family has lived in the region since the 1800s, and to disregard the Black Mountain presence is to erase both the past and the present. Chroniclers of Appalachian history have sometimes ignored the existence of Black people in the Appalachian South because of the disbelief, uh, because of the belief that the Scotch-Irish descendants who settled in the region were mostly poor and therefore couldn't afford slaves. But records show that early Appalachians did in fact own slaves. And beyond that, the African presence in Appalachia was documented as early as the 1500s when enslaved Africans and free persons of color arrived in the region with Spanish and French explorers. Though mountain slavery wasn't like the large enforced labor camps of the Deep South, enslaved people worked on farms, in mines, logging, and in kitchens before and after manumissions. While the rampant stereotype of the white hillbilly remains, Black people have always been of these hills. And I really need to look no further than my own family as proof. My family has lived for five generations in the hills of Casey County in a little hamlet called Indian Creek. Our home place was cradled by tree-covered hills in the south central part of the state at the head of Green River. Casey County was formed in 1806, two years before Aggie of Color, my fourth great-grandmother, was likely brought from Virginia to the new territory as an enslaved child. This book is about my foremothers, my kitchen ghosts about the ways in which the foodways of the hills were passed primarily down through the women in my family to me and how I will pass them on to my generations. The concept of the kitchen ghosts came to me years ago when I realized that my ancestors are always with me and that the women are most present when I'm chopping or stirring or standing at the stove. The art of cooking and engaging with my kitchen ghosts made me realize that food is never just about the present. Every dish, every slice, every crumb and kernel also tethers us to the past. And as we've been talking, uh, it's the recipes that do that and the stories and the ever-present um, presence of the kitchen ghosts in your ancestors. Not all of them, however, are uh, female. That's and right. uh, there is a wonderful through line um, about the men who cook that is still that is present in your husband and your son. But um, particularly in this book is rooted in your grandpa Silas and uh, his uh, expertise making sorghum molasses. Um, so for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with that, maybe you could talk a little bit about what sorghum is and also Grandpa Silas and his um, fame 
in the perfect sorghum. Yes, I um my grandfather was the sorghum king. <laughs> um and sorghum is a um um a grain um that actually is a, a sort of an ancient grain. Um and um the people who particularly men who went out and, and did sorghum were very proud and there's a particular there are very particular ways uh, this is an art form and there's very particular ways about how you make sorghum and what it should look like and what the cook weight should be and the viscosity um, and all of that. And uh, he was very much an advocate um, for all of that. And I'd like to read just a little passage from that, if you don't mind. Yes. My grandfather was the king of sorghum. He was six feet tall, born in 1909 to Big Jim and Melinda. He fathered seven children, eight if you count the baby who died, farmed tobacco and corn, wore bib overalls, plaid work shirts and a hat, brogans, unless it was Sunday. On Sundays, he wore uncomfortable church shoes, chose from a blue shirt, a paisley shirt, a white shirt or a pale yellow shirt with dark trousers. Since his stomach was busted in a bad fall on the farm, he couldn't stand anything around his waist for long, but he wore a belt to church. Granddaddy had a sweet tooth. He loved sorghum, poured rich mounds of the deeply rich amber syrup onto his plate, added a pat of butter and stirred with a fork until a yellow brown swirl gleamed like gold. Then he added two of my grandmother's perfect biscuits. He'd say, now that's good eating. But he also, like many Appalachian farmers, grew and harvested the sorghum, cooked the syrup himself. Sorghum cane, which is scientifically a grass, was among the cargo brought over with chattel slaves from Africa as early as 1700. This sorghum grain, sometimes called guinea corn, was used to feed chickens and other livestock but was also used to feed enslaved Africans and to make bread and pudding. The strong fibers of the stalk of certain sorghums were used to make brooms. Historically, sweet sorghum, which is different than grain sorghum, became popular during, during refined sugar shortages, first during the Civil War and later during the Great Depression. Though it's rising in popularity now in restaurants, Sorghum was always the poor people's sweetener, be they black and saved laborers or white poor mountain and southern people. My family made sorghum in the hills for decades. Granddaddy was known for having the best sorghum on Indian Creek and in the county for many years. When I was a girl, Granddaddy held his finger out for me to grab as we crossed the creek to the field where he grew his crop. The stalks of sorghum looked like earless corn. Sorghum seed hung like green tassels. Granddaddy inspected the stalks, pulled them down to make sure there were no insects, no disease. By October, sorghum seed hung like crimson tassels, signaling harvest time. Granddaddy inspected the stalks, pulled them down to see if they were ready. Sometimes he drew his pocket knife, cut, cut and offered me a piece of fiber stalk in the gigantic palm of his hand. The stalk was rough, pinched my tongue, produced a scratchy sweetness. When the crop was ready, Granddaddy stripped the leaves and removed the ruby-seeded tassels, saving some for the next year's crop. Yeah, sorghum is something I strongly associate, kind of like country ham with Kentucky. Um, and I don't know if, if you know much about how much more widely it is made and enjoyed than Kentucky and Appalachia. Is it? Is it? I, I, when I lived on the West Coast, no one had heard of such a thing as sorghum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that it is known throughout throughout Appalachia. It's not just Kentucky. It's known throughout the region, um, and usually in those pockets where there was scarcity of sugar you know sugar used to be right like gold 
And so they came up on different things that they could use. And so, you know, there was always maple trees to use and um, to sort of get at it that way. But mainly um, a lot of old time people use sorghum. Um, it might be an acquired taste for some folks. You talk and I, I love your language about this, the wang and the tang of it. <laughs> Uh, maybe explain what you're talking about here and how your grandfather. Yeah, there's a little bit of a, um, of course, there's a sweetness, but there's also a, a tartness that hits the back of the throat uh, when you when you eat sorghum, um, particularly if it's not perfect. You know, that was one of the things that my grandfather would uh, would would do. Like, there's a whole little little thing in here where he would test other people's sorghum, and he would say. Too green, whoever made it cooked it too long. This one tastes burnt. <laughs> and then he'd, he'd say, This one's all right, but it's not like mine. So there's a, and I find myself doing the same thing because I'll travel uh, far and wide for uh, sorghum. We have a, a Morgan County has a big um, sorghum festival, but in my hometown, there's also the Oberholzers, uh, an Amish. Uh, outfit that does sorghum and they do it pretty well but I find myself doing the same thing I'll buy sample sorghums around and I'll go mm, this one's green because so if it's green it's even it's even tangier uh, and that's uh -huh. not the taste should be just be a slight tartness on on the back uh, uh, on the back note so it's nuance it's not you know sugar is sugar like syrup pancake syrup is pancake syrup there's like no nuance but there's a particular complexity uh with sorghum that i that i just love i would agree yeah um and just to again to to give listeners a sense of kind of how the recipes and the essay memoir memory component works what what are the recipes that you include in that chapter Oh, there's sorghum cookies. Um, there is, again, I pull from our cafe life uh, when Ron and I had the cafe. So there's a dark crystal latte, which is a sorghum latte. Um, there's gingerbread uh, with sorghum being a primary uh, component. So those are some of the ones uh, in the back. And again, the recipes travel sort of across time with, you know, that modern sorghum latte um and then old fashioned old, old fashioned molasses cookies sorghum cookies yeah it's probably um, the oldest the oldest that's the oldest recipe i think so traveling a little bit then into the future some of the closing chapters are maybe more grounded in the right now including uh, pandemic and uh, the ways in which uh, the food and meal rituals were disrupted um, for everyone, really. Uh, and, you know, suddenly the community that gathered around food and the ability to share that became in incredibly fraught. Um, also, your grandma, Christine, who raised you and is a, I don't want to say the largest, the kitchen ghost that looms largest now, but certainly there are so many wonderful uh, memories of cooking with her. Uh, mm -hmm. But you talk about her her passing in the first year that you made the big meal uh, and relying on your kitchen ghost to get you through that. Maybe you can read a little bit, tell us a little bit about that and um, share some of that. And into yeah, the, um, the, the gratitude, I think, also. Yeah, you know, I um I was sort of my grandmother's uh prepper, right? I was her her sous chef <laughs> um when I was growing up and, and and even beyond that once I became um an adult and uh, my mother suffered from mental illness and so my mother never picked up that slack. So at 30 something years old when my grandmother died, I found myself uh, all, this huge family that we had that had 27 grandchildren, seven children that would all gather in this tiny house on Indian Creek was suddenly splintered when my grandparents passed and everybody was trying to create their own uh, traditions. So I found myself in the kitchen at that young age 
trying to do it myself. So there's a little bit of that um, here. The first year after Granny died, it felt strange to be cooking for myself, my mother and my three young children. I was already an experienced cook, but I had never cooked a big holiday meal. I can't say that my grandmother sat me down and taught me how to cook. Just as my mother played piano by sight, I had learned to cook by sight. I have always been an observer. The years brought adult children, spouses, and significant others, grandchildren, other invited guests. Thanksgiving was laughter, conversation, applause for a meal, well-cooked leftovers, and food so good I could die. Each of those years before the pandemic, I had vacillated between pride and satisfaction, fulfilled my culinary destiny as a Wilkinson woman, cooked until I was tired to the bone. So one of the, the most um, sort of devastating things for me is, you know, there's always this tension between being a, a contemporary feminist and then to also be tethered to the kitchen in some of the same ways that my grandmother was tethered to the kitchen. So when the pandemic came and this tradition that I had been such a big part of cooking this huge meal for my family to show them, you know, that was the gift uh, of the holidays is all of this food that I cooked. Um, it was sort of devastating to me. Um, and I'll, I'll read just a little bit of that. And uh, it became hilarious because my my children began to see that this wasn't easy, that I'd made it look easy so many years as our grandmothers and mothers do for generations. We canceled Thanksgiving the first year of the pandemic. I cooked a small dinner for me and my husband, but not the large traditional dinner I usually prepared for a dozen or so of our family members. My son attempted a holiday meal for himself and his daughter using a crock pot and hot plate since his stove was broken. My bonus daughter cooked ham and side dishes for her two sons and her boyfriend. The girls, my twin daughters, attempted to cook a traditional dinner for their families in their respective homes while I acted as their cooking coach via Zoom. It was all so strange. Our house was eerily quiet, nothing like the feast I'd grown up with um, or the holidays I'd hosted for all those 28 years since my grandmother died. My grandparents' remain, remaining five children, the 25 grandchildren and the great-grandchildren stopped gathering for the holidays after my grandmother died. We were splintered all over Kentucky and beyond, preparing our own separate meals. Because of her mental health, my mother was never able to prepare a large meal. So even though I felt as if I were too young to be a matriarch during those early years, I saw it as my duty. I remember fear, exhaustion, soreness from my shoulder blades to the bottoms of my feet, cooking for two days, the stench of the turkey carcass leaning, lingering in the air for weeks, mounds of dirty dishes. That first year I sat in the closet where my grandmother's dress was hanging and cried before I hung her dress in the kitchen and got to work. And so then we sort of, that's how it was. And then we fast forward. Um, Thanksgiving morning via Zoom, my daughter Elania stands in her kitchen with a look of disgust on her face, presents her raw turkey to me on the screen. She holds it up as if it were a baby, bounces it a couple of times, Lion King style. Now what? She asks. I ask her if she has softened butter and she dances two sticks in front of her. Put that turkey down and put the butter on it, I tell her. She places the bird on her bare counter and digs her fingers into the butter and begins to smooth it on with her fingertips as if she's tickling the turkey. I think salmonella. I think, ancestors, please forgive her. Her sister Dee laughs and holds her corn pudding up to the screen like a trophy. Looks good, I say, but it doesn't taste like yours, she says. I tell Elania to put her turkey in the pan. She plops the 20-pound turkey onto a baking sheet with a thud. Oh, Lord, I say, 
standing, sounding like my grandmother for the world. I laugh and cannot stop. Roasting pan, I eke out. She goes through several pans in her kitchen, plops the buttered turkey into each one until she lands on an actual roasting pan. She places another stick of butter into the cavity, sprinkles something on the top. I shake my head in pity and shame, and I laugh so hard there is no sound. My phone rings. This shit's stressful, my son says. This ain't Thanksgiving. I ask him if he wants to come onto the video chat with his sisters. He emphatically says no. He cusses a few more times, says he loves me and hangs up. I return to Zoom and the turkey, may he rest in peace, is gone. In the oven, Elania says. Is that pride I hear in her voice? Dee says her dressing tastes funny. How'd you make it, I ask her. She says, sandwich bread, cornbread, turkey broth, sage, onion, celery. That sounds right. But she says it has a bitter taste to it. I ask her if she's used too much sage. I ask her how she made her cornbread. With Jiffy Mix, she says. Jiffy'd be too sweet, I say. I like it sweet, she says. I shrug my shoulders at this sacrilege. How old is your cornbread mix, I ask. She is out of the camera's eye, but we can hear her rummaging through her trash. She comes back and holds the boxes up. Expired 2012, she says. <laughs> I widen my eyes at the screen. It dawns on me where those boxes of Jiffy came from. Did you get those from Granny's house? Yes, she said. My mother died in 2016. I do the math and rub my forehead. I'm a fix it, she says, and bounces toward her kitchen table with renewed determination. We say our love yous and our goodbyes. Happy Thanksgiving, I say. Let me know how it goes. That's wonderful. So much <laughs> gratitude, so much love, so much good humor. Um, Crystal, there are so many things we haven't talked about with this wonderful book, chapters on gardening, chapter on your fraught relationship with pork, chapters on uh, foraging in the wild and the roots of Black and Appalachian foodways in slavery and in the 20th century. Um, I hope all of our listeners are hungry. And we'll seek out this work. We'll be bold enough to try a few of these amazing recipes. Um, and we'll look for the book for their friends and family. Um, it's, it's a wonderful family gift. Um, I feel like I want to buy it for my mom, actually. <laughs> um, and uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for taking time this uh, morning to, to talk with me. Oh, thank you for having me. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.